as our uh, Cactus Campus and then our Mountain Valley Campus, our chapel next door and our venue across the campus, join us for our time in the Word. Uh, I want to do a couple of preliminary things uh, first. I don't usually do this, but we have just a couple of things to cover before we pray and dive in. Uh, the first, let's just get the obvious out of the way because three of you have already uh, come up to me. I have a different pair of shoes on today. And uh, they're, they're, my, they're my sketchers, and I know that some of you don't like that, uh, but I'm, I'm heading out for a trip after the second service. I have to switch flights in Chicago, and so it was a judgment call when I woke up this morning of whether I put on my nice black shoes that I know you like or my sketchers. So I chose my sketchers. <laughs> and here's what I can promise you if that bums you out, uh, and that's the worst thing that happens to you today, you're really blessed. So um, it, it's really not a bad problem. But we had a prayer meeting uh, Wednesday night. It was really special. And so we had a, a few hundred people meet in our worship center here from all over our campuses and venues. And we uh, prayed for our city. We prayed for the persecuted church across the world for ISIS and Syria and Africa and China and a lot of what's going on for our brothers and sisters that are experiencing persecution and it was a rich time and I believe the Lord uh, heard and hears our prayers so next time we do this we try to do it quarterly I, I'd encourage you to come out as we uh, begin a, a multi-series study in the Gospel of John today this is a, a big day for our church uh, we just celebrated Easter last Sunday, and we announced that we're going to be spending some time in the Gospel of John. And when I say multi-series study, uh, we're going to break this up into bite-sized chunks, thematic series, the first one called I Believe. And all I can say is that, you know, the Gospel of John is very unique uh, among the New Testament Gospels. It's very different than Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And I've been studying it for about a year, and this is incredibly rich and profound stuff that God gives us in the Gospel of John. And I think you're really going to like it. Whether you're a seeker, a believer, a veteran, Christian, or a novice, I mean, no matter where you are on your spiritual journey, God has something for you uh, in this amazing, life-giving Gospel of His. And I'm really excited about what we're starting today. So, with that said, let's bow and pray. We're going to dive right in. Father God, I thank you that there is not one person here in this worship center or at our venues or campuses that is not massively loved by you. That as the hound of heaven, you are constantly reaching out to us and loving us in the name of your son, Jesus. And so I pray that as we open up your word now, that God, you would speak to our minds and our hearts, each of us individually and then collectively, certainly, as the church. God, may we not be disappointed for having met with other believers today in your house and in your place and studying your word together. Speak to us now, we pray in Christ's name, and we all say together, amen. So I can remember years ago, too long now, when I was in seminary back in the late 1980s, I took an entire course on just the Gospel of John. And at one point, the professor made what I thought was a very profound and thought-provoking statement. He said, look up here on the screen, and I quote, The Gospel of John is shallow enough for a child to wade in, but deep enough for an elephant to bathe in. And I loved that word picture. 
that the Gospel of John is simple enough that our children can get it. So right now in Sunday school, we're probably teaching them some aspect of John, like John 3.16, that God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. I mean, it's the simplicity of the Gospel. And yet... For 2,000 years now, veteran Christians and theologians have been trying to plumb the depths of statements like these when Jesus said, it is the Spirit who gives life, the flesh is no help at all, the words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life, no one can come to me unless it is granted to him by the Father. I mean, that's rich stuff. And entire schools of thought of Christianity have been made just around statements like that that Jesus has made in the, Gospels of, in the Gospel of John. And that's just a sampling. I've spent the last year reading and rereading the Gospel of John and then doing a bit of background study as well. And i got to tell you, folks, this Gospel is rich. The unique teachings of Jesus in this Gospel are profound. And it's going to speak, as I said earlier, to each and every one of us. It's got something for us that I believe you will not be disappointed in. Now, as I mentioned earlier, the first series of messages we're going to do, we're going to call I Believe. And it's from John chapters 1 through 4. And the reason that we called this I Believe, small i, capital B, kind of like your iPhone, is because the first, because the whole purpose of the Gospel of John is that we would believe in him and then grow and mature in our faith. So the first series we're going to do is going to focus on belief and faith because that's really the setup, that's the purpose of the Gospel of John. If you don't believe me, look at John chapter 20, verse 31. He's kind of capping off his Gospel here and he reminds them what he was doing and here's what he says. He says, these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So the whole Gospel of John was written so that you and I might believe, and then don't stop there, keep on believing through all the ups and downs of life. And to be sure, this word believe that's mentioned twice here in verse 31, it's the Greek word pistuo, get this, appears 98 times in the Gospel of John. I counted 98 times. It's like a scratch CD over and over again. Believe, 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 believe. For those of you who are uh, engineers, that's about 4.6 times per chapter that the word believe occurs in the Gospel of John. So the entire Gospel is written for a laser beam focus to believe in Jesus and to keep on believing. Now, here's what's even more amazing, is that when you look closely then at the first four chapters of John, as I've been doing over the last year, you realize, now don't miss this, that these first four chapters comprise ten relational interactions in which Jesus interacts with people around him. And in each one of these ten relational interactions, he reveals to us some aspect of himself that he gives us in order that we may believe and keep on believing. It's an amazing thing when you look closely. That Jesus interacts like the, at the wedding in Cana, or as we're going to see today with John the Baptist, or in, with Nicodemus in chapter 3. And in each setting, he gives us some element of himself for us to grab onto a handle so that we may believe and then keep on believing. So it's things like this, his constant presence in our lives, which we're going to look at today. Or his forgiveness of our sin, 
which Tom Schrader is going to teach on next week here at our church, or his revelation of truth to us, or even his tough love at times in our life, like when he turned the tables over in the temple, and so much more. All of these things come to us in and through Jesus, and they're designed to help us believe, again, whether you're a first-time seeker or a long-time veteran, it's a similar journey, a soul-altering journey that we're going to look at this spring here in John 1 through 4. Now, as we come to our first faith builder today that's found in John chapter 1, verses 19 to 28, I'm going to let you know up front that I'm not going to read and explain this entire passage. And the reason is simple. Because last August, in a series on Mark chapter 1, we looked at an almost identical account of John the Baptist and how John the Baptist came to prepare the way for Jesus and point to Jesus. And I did an entire message on it, which I told you about John the Baptist and who he is and what he is about. And so to rehash all of that, just because it occurs here in John again, probably wouldn't be helpful just eight months later. And so if you're interested in that, you can go online at our website and do a refresher course. We keep all the messages there. But today, for our purposes, what I want to do, and I think this is really awesome, is point out in this passage a small, tucked away, almost easy-to-miss phrase that John the Baptist uses about Jesus when he was initially talking to the crowds about him that I believe encapsulates the first faith builder, the first element of Jesus that you and I need to grab onto. And the phrase occurs in verse 26 of John 1, when, that, when John the Baptist was speaking about Jesus, and here is the phrase. He says, among you stands one you do not know. Among you stands one you do not know. I need you to think about that phrase for just a minute here. In its original context here in John 1, John the Baptist is telling the crowds 2,000 years ago about this Jesus who was just about ready to appear on the scene. He's going to engage in three years of public ministry. He's going to go to a wooden cross and die for our sins. He's going to be resurrected three days later. He's eventually going to ascend back into heaven. And John, in setting all of this up, describes him as one who stands among you whom you do not no. It's fascinating. At the very least, this had to pique the interest of the crowds, and at the very most, this would have blown them away. They would have almost started looking around, saying, who, where, what? This word stand here is an interesting word. It's the Greek word histemi, and in its most rudimentary form, you're going to like this, this word means to stay put, to maintain, to establish. It's a very rugged and gritty term in the Bible. It was used in the Old Testament, the Greek version of the Old Testament, to describe what God told the, uh, the Israelites to do when the Egyptians were pursuing them. Remember this? During the Exodus event. He said, stand firm, hold your ground. And then you fast forward to the New Testament, and the same word is used at times to talk about how believers need to stand firm during difficult times in our lives. You get the idea. It means unmovable, stayed, not going anywhere. Hold your ground. And so go back here to John 1. John the Baptist is telling us that Jesus first appeared on the scene and he stood among them as one who wasn't going anywhere, but at the very least was going to give them his presence among them 
to teach them, to guide them into truth, to reveal the Father to them, and ultimately to go to the cross to bring the forgiveness that we need to have a relationship with Almighty God. And as I was meditating on this passage this week, I thought that's such an easy passage to miss, but it seems so incredibly pregnant with meaning for you and me today. And then I was doing the research through the commentators, and you know, one of the old-time devotional commentators is a guy by the name of Matthew Henry. Some of you might read him. He's not the most academic guy that ever commented on the Bible, but he has real great insight into the Scriptures. So I always reference Matthew Henry when I'm studying the Bible. And he said something that kind of jumped off the page to me. I put it up here on the screen for you. Look what Matthew Henry says about this exact phrase. He says, Christ stood among the people and was one of them. God himself is often nearer to us than we are aware of. You see what he's suggesting here, guys? He's suggesting that just as Jesus stood among them 2,000 years ago, he still stands among us today. And they didn't get it back then just as many don't get it today, but he was with them back then, and his presence is still with us today. I mean, he promised to never leave us or forsake us, and this presence of Jesus, if you and I can begin to understand it and tap into it and even experience it in our daily walk with God, becomes one of the first faith builders that the Gospel of John gives us. So here's our main point as we kick off this series, and it's this, that Jesus is with us a lot more than we we might realize. I mean, part of my goal today is to try to convince some of you who are tempted right now to say, yeah, 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 I know that, to say, I'm not sure that you know it as much as you think you do. And even if you think you know it, I'm not sure you experience his presence as God wants you to. Why? Because among you, stands one whom you do not know. And I think there's some relevance to that for you and me today. Now, if you're tracking with me at all this morning, the question obviously at this point becomes how. How and in what ways does Jesus still stand among us today? How and in what ways does he give us his presence, a presence that we might not fully understand, but that we would do well to recognize and begin to grow in? Four things in our time remaining today that I want to suggest to you. Four things the Bible affirms that are ways that Jesus still stands among us today. Four kinds of presence of Jesus that the Bible affirms that I think you and I need to add all together and start living. And here's the first one, and that is that Jesus is in you. How is his presence with us still today? He is in you. Jesus made this clear on multiple occasions that for those of us who dare to believe and place our faith in him, he responds by making his home within us. So look at how he puts this in John 14, verses 20 and 23. He says, in that day you will know that I am in the Father, and you in me, and I in you. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come, here it is, and make our home with, or even better yet, within him. 
And so I got to tell you, we don't have time to look at it today, but this promise is all over the New Testament. This is not a one-off here. I mean, over and over again, the New Testament makes very clear that for those who dare to follow Jesus, he reciprocates by saying, I'm never going to leave you. And why am I not going to leave you? Because I now choose to live in you. And this is, the theologians call this the indwelling of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in the life of the believer. And before we apply this to show you how relevant this is, let me make one very quick comment so that we fully understand this. This is a literal indwelling. Give me a head nod that you understand that. This is not some nice word picture. This is not an allegory being presented here. No, he truly resides in the soul of those who choose to follow him. And so the obvious implication here is that he is a lot closer to the believer, to those of us who trust him, than any of us would ever realize. There is one who stands among you whom you do not know. Or at the very least, you don't know how close he is to you because he lives in you. Uh, R.A. Dickey is a uh, professional baseball player who currently plays for the Toronto Blue Jays. And if you follow baseball, this guy's had quite a career. He started his pitching career almost 20 years ago in 1996, and he's played for no less than five major league clubs. And in 2012, he won the coveted Cy Young Award. He's a pitcher, which is the highest honor for a pitcher in the major leagues. And R.A. Dickey is a committed follower of Jesus Christ. And a couple of years ago, he wrote a book about his faith. It has a long title. It was called, Wherever I Wind Up, My Quest for Truth, Authenticity, and the Perfect Knuckleball. And he tells the story in this uh, book of what happened to him when he first started out in baseball, being the number one draft pick by the Texas Rangers. You see, he entered training camp that year, and he had been offered $810,000 as his contract. Now, now today, for a baseball player, that might not seem like a lot of money. But back then, and even today, that's a tremendous amount of money. And R.A. breathed a prayer to God upon the signing of that contract in which he said, Thank you, Lord, for all your blessings and for helping me get this far. But shortly after he said that prayer, the team physician found on a routine x-ray that R.A. was genetically missing his collateral, ulnar collateral ligament in his right throwing arm. He just never developed one. And the management got nervous, even though this didn't affect his throwing, and they retracted their offer to him. In fact, they simply reduced it. They took it from $810,000 down to $75,000 and essentially said, we'll see what happens. As R.A.'s manager delivered this news to him, I want you to listen what happens next as R.A. processed this devastating disappointment. This is so typical male. Look up here on the screen. He says, I try to take in those words for a second or two. We're going to retract our offer. I don't feel devastation or even anger. I feel rage, complete rage. It feels as if it starts in my toes and blasts upward through my body like a tsunami into my guts and right up through the top of my head. I want to tell Melvin, he was the general manager of the Rangers, and I want to tell Melvin about how this is the one thing that I can do right and that makes me somebody. I want to make sure he knows that he's matter-of-factly dropped this atomic bomb on my baseball career. 
on my life. You know, but it's interesting, as you read on in the book, R.A. tells a story that right at that point, something happened inside of him that made all the difference and has everything to do with the indwelling God. Look what he goes on to write. He says, but it's as if there's a strong hand on my shoulder holding me back, giving me pause. In that instant, I have a self-control that wasn't there a moment earlier. I hear a voice, relax, I've got you. Relax, R.A., it's okay, I've got you. He says, I was just talking to God in prayer, and now he's talking back, giving me a composure that could not have come from anywhere else. The tsunami passes. I am crushed by Doug Melvin's words, but I'm not going to do anything stupid. I've got you. See, and by the way, it obviously has a good ending because he's still playing baseball and he won the Cy Young Award, so everything tended to work out for him. But he didn't know that at the time. And I love how he says, focus on those words again, that what he heard God say to him is that I've got you, it's okay, I've got you. See, that's the voice, guys, of the indwelling God, indwelling the believer through Jesus' personal presence, the one who still stands among us today. Why? Because he lives in us who believe. And the obvious application here is that some of us here today or even at our campuses and venues, are facing potentially devastating news in our lives right now. Our marriage or another key relationship is not going well. Our kids are going the wrong way. Our job stinks. We hate school. We're lonely and tired. So many things. And what you need to hear today is that the one who stands among you, the one who lives in you, wants to speak to you through what Elijah calls that still, small voice. But you got to hear it you got to slow down. You can't overreact. you got to pause, as R.A. did in our story there. And when you do, you realize there's one who stands among you, who lives in you, and his presence is real. And this series makes sense. I believe we end up saying. Now, we're not done yet. We're, believe it or not, we're just ramping up because there is more. There's some equally powerful ways that his presence is also with us today. So in the few remaining moments we have, let's look at the other three. And here's the second thing we learn about Jesus' presence with us, and that is that Jesus is in others. Now, now this is going to blow you away. He's in others in and around us. So look at how Jesus would make this clear. Matthew 18, verse 20. Jesus says, For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. I've taught you guys this before, but you know what blows me away about that passage there? Is that this has to mean that when you gather with other believers who also have Jesus living in them, then in the collectivity of that gathering, there is a special presence of Jesus. Some even argue a heightened presence of Jesus because we already know he lives in us even when we're alone as believers. But he's saying here that when you gather together with just two or three others, it becomes like a little mini church right there. And as the Old Testament says, God loves to inhabit the praises of his people. And so what he's teaching us there is that there's something about the gathered church, there's something about your Bible study, there's something about you just having coffee with another believer and sharing something intimate about your life in which God says he's going to give you a unique sense of his presence. 
and that he's going to be there and do something, now don't miss this, that he might not otherwise do when you're alone. And again, what a great truth for some of us. Some of us just like to be lone rangers in our Christian faith. We're kind of tough, and we feel we don't need other people. We need God, but maybe not other people. And when we do get involved with other people, it's messy, and it's no fun, and all that stuff. I get that. I mean, I'm a pastor. I get that more than any of you guys. But the reality is, is that God says we do need each other, and if you want a sense of his presence, you better start being around other believers, because that's where his presence, in a unique way, is found. Uh, Lee Eckloff is a pastor in a, uh, a small church in suburban Chicago, and he writes regularly for a Christian magazine that I read. And one of the things I love about this man is that he is a real shepherd pastor, as far as I can tell. In other words, he's a pastor who wants to know the name and does know the name of every single sheep in his church, and he tracks them and walks with them, and he writes about the shepherding aspect of his pastoring, and, I, and I'm moved by it. A while back, he wrote about an experience that he had on a rather typical day of shepherding. And, uh, and I want to read it to you because it was a normal experience with a very profound result. He, he says, a young friend called me to say that she'd been admitted, or admitted herself to a psychiatric hospital. While she was there, I visited her when I could. On one of my visits, it was Good Friday. I asked her if she would like me to bring communion to her, and she said she would, and she asked me if some of the other hospitalized Christians could join us. He says, on that spring afternoon, five or six of us gathered in her room and shared the sacred meal. I think it was one of those meaningful communion services I ever shared. Half a dozen strangers, each scarred by heartache, sitting helpless in a locked ward. Now, now, now listen to what he says next. Look up here on your screens. He says, yet Jesus was there because we were there as his beloved. He was not only among us, but he was there within us. Even as broken people, we were one with each other. We were strengthened by his presence. We were healed in a way. We were nourished, washed, and rejuvenated. And I don't know about you, but I just say, whoa. That's the God that I know, that even for people who are struggling to keep it together emotionally and mentally, which I know many of us feel on a daily basis, there's something that happens when you take the risk to get with another group of believers, get a bit honest, and see what God does. Years ago, Eugene Peterson commented in one of his books that every church should have a huge warning sign outside of its doors that says, beware of God, enter at your own risk. <laughs> and I love that. You know, I come from Ohio, and, you know, rednecks have these signs that say, beware of dog. You know, we've all seen those. And I pictured that in my mind. If you had a big sign at a church that says, beware of God, enter at your own risk. Not in some ominous way. How about in some life-giving way? As God wants to meet us as a gathered church and do something in us and through us that would not happen when we're alone. You, you want to experience the presence of Jesus more in your life? Where two or three are gathered in his name, there he is among them. And, and then as you're chewing on this, notice with me a third way that Jesus still stands among us today. And that is that Jesus is in your circumstances. He's in your circumstances. And you're saying, what's the difference? 
Well, as fascinating. He doesn't simply live in us, the Bible says, and he doesn't simply give us his presence with others, though he does those two things. I'm going to show you right now how the Bible tells us that he actually moves and breathes and acts as the living, resurrected Savior that he is in and through our circumstances. Whether they're up and down, good or bad, he's less concerned about that. He's more concerned about giving his presence to us. And you're saying, well, where's that? You know, Jesus says some of his very last words we call the Great Commission. They're found at the end of Matthew chapter 28, verses 16 through 20. And when you look closely at the Great Commission, this is the prelude here before we read the verse, the Great Commission, and tell me you understand this, is all about action and doing, right? Go into all the world and teach and baptize. I mean, it's like missionary activity on steroids. That's the Great Commission. And listen to what Jesus says as he closes the Great Commission. He says, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And so his presence is manifest in and among all of our doing, all of our circumstances, whether good or bad, successful or failure, up or down, his presence is there. And though this is for another sermon, exactly how his presence is experienced in our circumstances, I mean, we experience it in everything from answered prayer to a good doctor's report to a restored relationship to ecstatic times of worship, but what I believe we really need to not miss here is that the promise, not, 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 no, don't miss this, the promise is his presence, not altered circumstances. That was a really good place for an amen, so let me repeat that. <laughs> the promise is his presence, not necessarily altered circumstances. I'm telling you, I don't think the church gets this today. And the reason I know that is because most of us have major problems with God when he shows up in our midst and doesn't do what we want him to do. I mean, I spend most of my pastoral counseling trying to undo false expectations of God more than anything else. And if you don't hear anything else today, hear this. Think about the promise that he gives you, and behold, I am with you to the very end of the age. He didn't say, I'm with you and going to fix all your problems. I I'm with you and going to give you every blessing that you want. No, the presence is the promise. And if a blessing flows from that, then amen. It's a cherry on top of the cake. But the cake is his presence. As many of you know, one of my uh, favorite authors is Dr. Larry Crabb. And about a decade ago, Larry wrote what I consider a groundbreaking book called The Pressure's Off. And in this book, Larry is 60 at the time that he wrote this book, he tells a, an amazing story of what happened to him when he was three. So let's travel back in time. Larry Crabb's writing about what happened when he was three, 10 years ago when he was 60. He says, one Saturday afternoon when I was about three, I decided I was a big boy and could use the bathroom without anyone's help. So I climbed the stairs, closed and locked the door behind me, and for the next few minutes I felt very self-sufficient. He says, then it was time to leave, and I couldn't unlock the door. I tried every ounce of my three-year-old strength, but I couldn't do it. I panicked. I felt again like a very little boy that, as the thought went through my head, I might spend the rest of my life in this bathroom. <laughs> he goes on to say, my parents, and likely the neighbors, heard my desperate scream. My mother ran up the stairs and said, are you okay? Did you fall? Did you hit your head? 
And I yelled, I can't unlock the door. Get me out of here. He says, I wasn't aware of it right then, then, but Dad had already raced down the stairs, ran to the garage, found the ladder, hauled it off the hooks, leaned it against the side of the house just beneath the bathroom window, and with adult strength, he pried it open, climbed into my prison, walked right past me, and with that same strength, he turned the lock and opened the door. Larry says, I said, thanks, Dad, and ran out to play. Now listen to what Larry does with that very simple event. He says, that's how I thought the Christian life was supposed to work. When I get stuck in a tight place, I should do all I can to free myself, and when I can't, I should pray. And God will show up, he will hear my cry, and he will unlock the door to the blessings that I desire. Larry says, sometimes he does this, but now, no longer three years old and approaching 60, I'm realizing that the Christian life doesn't always work this way. And he says, I wonder, are there any of us who are content with just God? Do we even like him when he doesn't open the door that we want opened? When a marriage doesn't heal, when the rebellious kids still rebel, when the uh, friends betray us when financial reserves threaten our comfortable way of life, when the prospect of terrorism looms, when the help worsens despite much prayer, when loneliness intensifies and depression deepens, when ministries die. Is God enough? He says, God has climbed through the small window into my dark room, but he doesn't always walk by and turn the lock that I can't seem to budge. Instead, he sits down on the bathroom floor of my life and says, come sit with me. He seems to think that climbing into the room to be with me matters more than letting me out to play. <laughs> and I got to tell you, when I read that 10 years ago, that was a life-changing thought for me, guys. I'd been a Christian probably around 20 years at that time, and up to that point, I just assumed that, of course, God wants to give me and will give me all the blessings if I just pray hard enough and if I am obedient enough. And the more I've studied the Bible and the more I've hanged around some of you who are very mature veteran Christians, I have realized that the promise is the presence and that he might change our circumstances, he might give us blessings, but if he doesn't, what he's saying to us is that the presence is enough. And the tragedy is, and can you imagine saying this to God, is that some of us say to God, we don't actually say this, but we think it, it's not enough. You're not enough. You either alter my circumstances, or you, or me have, you and me have problems. And God, who loves you, doesn't consign you to hell for saying that. But what he does say, like a good father, is among you stands one whom you don't understand. Because if you understood him, you would realize that the gift of his presence is enough. So he is in you. He is in others around you. He is in your circumstances, giving you his presence. And then lastly, we got just a few minutes left. Let's wrap up with this one, because this is so tangible, and this is like out of left field. The Bible tells us that Jesus is in God's Word. He's in God's Word. I, I want you to look with me out of the New Testament book of Hebrews, which is all about helping us make sense of Jesus, tells us this. Look at Hebrews ch chapter 4, verse 12. It says, For the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. 
I teach on this passage when I teach, invited to teach at seminaries or over in Europe on how to preach. This is my theme verse on the power of God's word. And because I teach on this, I've studied this verse in depth, and I can just fast track you right now to tell you that the key to understanding this passage, what commentators will debate as the day is long, is the meaning of that phrase, the word of God. Because you see that word, word, in the original language that the New Testament was written in is the Greek word logos that appears some 300 times in the New Testament. And watch this, sometimes it refers to Jesus himself because Jesus is the living word of God. This word means expression, utterance, speech, or message. So Jesus is the revelation, the speech of God to us. So sometimes it means Jesus. But then all of a sudden the Bible will use the same word, logos, to refer to the written word, the Bible, that God has given us. So when it comes to Hebrews 4.12 here, the linchpin of understanding this is which is it? Is he referring to Jesus here? Or is he referring to the Bible here? And here's the answer. Yes. I believe that what Hebrews 4.12 is getting at here, now don't miss this, is that the living word Jesus reveals himself through the written word, the scriptures, to us. And so the great expositor's Bible commentary in volume 9 says it this way. The word of God means anything that God utters and particularly the word that came through Jesus Christ. So as the New Testament and Old Testament writers heard from God, wrote this stuff down, one of the ways that you and I experience the presence of God, even the presence of Jesus, is when we're in this book. And we allow the words of God to penetrate our hearts and our minds. And it's not just an academic study. Before you know it, you're having an experience with the living, resurrected Christ who lives in you, who is among you, and now is revealing himself in your word, in his word. And the reality is, this is something tangible that you and I can do every day. The only thing that will sabotage this is if we don't read the Bible. Uh, closing story and then we'll be done. I had a neat experience this week. A, a dear friend, one of the newer members of our church, came in to see me this week just to spend some time uh, unpacking some of the issues that he and I have been talking about uh, in his newfound faith and some of the difficulties that he's been having. And, and part of it is a relational breakdown that's really thrown his life and been difficult for him to process and where is God and what do I do and all that stuff. And at one point in our conversation, I mean, I'm a pastor, I think like this, I said to him, do you read the Bible very much? And I loved his honesty. He said, no, I hardly read it at all. And I said, hmm. I said, why don't you read the Bible? And his answer was kind of hilarious. He said, well, I got you. <laughs> and, I, and I didn't expect him to say that. And... I mean, isn't it weird how some people think? And he said, you know, I mean, I, you know, I, I hear you every Sunday, and you meet with me, and you, you explain the Bible to me. So his thinking was, why should I read it myself? Now, the question that obviously went in my mind right then that you all know the answer to is, is Jamie enough? <laughs> of course not. You would never run a rely ever, tip, on Jamie's teaching of the Bible to be enough because, one, I might just be wrong, and even more so, all we do is spend, you know, 39, 40 minutes in the Bible every Sunday, and you need a lot more than just that. So I did something that was really kind of fun. I was with this gentleman in my office, and I didn't say anything to that response. I just kind of smiled, and I stood up, 
and I walked around this wall that's in my office to where my library is. And in my library, I got two shelves that are just full of Bibles. Whenever anybody gives me a Bible, and lots of people do, I guess it's a nice gift for a pastor. I, I already have a Bible. And, and so I, uh, I take these Bibles. No, think about that. So I, I take the Bibles, and I don't want to throw them away, so I give them away. So I have a whole shelf of Bibles that people give me. They're brand new. And so I pulled one of these brand new Bibles. It's called the Encouragement Bible. I'd never heard of that. Maybe some of you read it, but it's an NIV version that has these margins, you know, of all these encouraging thoughts, whatever. But the Bible's on the left. And so I, 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 I walked over to him with this brand new Bible, and I set it down in front of him, and I opened up to the uh, table of contents, and I took out my pen, and I circled the Psalms. And I circled what page number it is, and I said, I want you to start reading the Psalms because David's crying out to God in his pain, and, and I think you'll relate to that. And Billy Graham said, if you read five Psalms a day, you'll be through it in a month. So just start reading the Psalms. And then I circled the Gospel of John for the, uh, the, the, the page number for the Gospel of John. And I said, you know, in church, we're going to start studying the Gospel of John. It's 21 chapters. If you read one chapter a day, you'll be through it in three weeks. And then I said to him this, because I know how people think, and I said, and so when you read it, and you get done with your 20 minutes of reading and nothing happens, here's what I want you to do. Read it again the next day. And when you read it the next day and you get done with chapter 2 and Psalms 5 or 6 through 10 and nothing happens, here's what I want you to do. Read again the next day. Read and read and read. And here's the promise is that over time, you'll learn how to read God's word. It's not as complicated as we make it. And you're going to start to hear him in his word. See, some of you veteran Christians know what I'm talking about. I mean, I, I, I don't read the Bible just for study. I study the Bible, but I read the Bible devotionally. I'm reading Ecclesiastes right now devotionally. The reason I read it devotionally is it's just me and a Bible, and, and I ask God to speak to me. And have you ever had the experience where something jumps off the page to you? I have. It's meeting me right in my circumstance, something I've been thinking or feeling or a problem I've been having or a thought that I didn't understand about God, and it jumps off the page, and it's like a major aha moment. John Orpberg calls them rainbow days, where, you know, kind of like after the flood, you all of a sudden see God's rainbow, and you go like R.A. said, you hear him say, it's okay, I've got you. See, he wants to meet us in his word, but if we don't spend time in his word, if all you do is listen to Jamie, then the reality is you're never going to experience him in his word. I gave you a thought to ponder here, and with this we're done. Here's how important this initial look at I believe is, and that is that his presence, once tapped into, has the power to change or transform us. I've seen it happen way too many times, guys. So don't ever forget this. There's one who stands among you, who many maybe even some fuller ways you do not understand. But you can understand him better because you can start to experience him. Because if you believe, he lives in you. If you're around other people who believe, he lives in them, and he'll give you his presence in and with them. And in your circumstances, because he loves you, he's going to move and breathe and act in your circumstances, sometimes giving you the blessing, but always giving you his presence. And then if that's not enough, Man, spend a ton of time in his word because he will speak to you and he will be present with you in his word. The word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, able to discern the thoughts and the intentions of your heart and he will change you. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for your wonderful, wonderful life-giving word. 
that you know I get the privilege to study during the week and then share with these dear people the things that you have shown and revealed. And God, I pray that if there's anything here today that I have shared that is not uh, cogent and in line with your word, then I pray, God, it will fall on deaf ears. But the things that are of you would penetrate our hearts and our minds toward the end goal of never, ever doubting your presence, but continuing to trust in you this Jesus that we know and the presence that you give. And I pray this in Christ's name. And we all say together, amen. amen. God bless you guys.